Hello, I am Professor Edith Brown Weiss at Georgetown University, and it's my great pleasure to be delivering the mini series on international environmental law. We are in our second lecture on the principles of international environmental law. And I want to turn now to the problems of risk and of fairness to future generations. This involves two principles of international environmental law the precautionary principle, and the principle of intergenerational equity. In the Anthropocene epoch today, our actions can have long-term and potentially very dangerous effects on the human environment. The precautionary principle addresses this problem. It is related to the fundamental obligation of avoiding harm, to an obligation of due diligence, and to the concept of sustainable development. It's central to living in the Anthropocene epoch. The precautionary principle focuses on the risk of harm occurring and the need to act and the need to do so in the face of scientific uncertainty. The 1990 Ministerial Declaration on Sustainable Development under the auspices of the UNECE, the UN Economic Commission for Europe, may have been among the first international legal instruments to articulate the principle as one of general application and to link it to sustainable development. That ministerial declaration provided that, quote, in order to achieve sustainable development, policies must be based on the precautionary principle Environmental measures must anticipate, prevent, and attack the causes of environmental degradation where there are threats of serious or irreversible damage. Lack of full scientific certainty should not be used as a reason for postponing measures to prevent environmental degradation." Unquote. The declaration was drafted when there was controversy over whether states needed to address climate change. And just before the negotiations opened for the 1992 UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. The Rio Declaration on Environment and Development in 1992 includes Principle 15, which refers to the, quote, precautionary approach. The title of the principle is precautionary, the precautionary principle. Uh, the language refers to the precautionary approach. And it asserts cost considerations into the definition of the principle. Principle 15 provides that, quote, where there are threats of serious or irreversible damage, the lack of full scientific certainty shall not be used as a reason for postponing cost-effective measures to prevent environmental degradation." Unquote. Note the addition of the words cost-effective in describing the measures to be taken. Will you get sufficient benefits for the costs that are to be incurred? Article 3 of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change negotiated at the same time includes a precautionary principle, and it also refers to cost-effective measures. But the Convention on Biological Diversity, again negotiated at the same time, 
includes the precautionary principle in its preamble, but does not refer to any cost-effective measures. Rather, it states that, quote, if there is threat of significant reduction or loss of biological diversity, lack of full scientific certainty shall not be used as the reason for postponing measures to avoid or minimize such a threat. Much of the debate on climate change in the last few decades has been about determining whether the harm would be serious and the degree of risk entailed. Moreover, there is a question of the standard of proof required for assessing the risk and where the burden of proof lies in doing so. While the precautionary principle is generally regarded as a principle in international environmental law, its legal status, though, may still be unsettled in the minds of some. The initial formulation in the Rio Declaration reflect, reflected disagreement between European countries who generally regarded it as a principle, and the United States, which objected to calling it a principle and argued instead that it was an approach. The wording of the Rio Declaration reflected this tension by including a Principle 15 under the heading of Principles, and the principle then provides provides for precaution so that the opening line of the principle of intergenerational equity of, um, of precautionary principle refers to the precautionary approach. In the years since the controversy has continued, though within Europe there is certainly sufficient evidence of state practice in opinion juris to regard it as a binding principle. International courts and judicial bodies have been re reluctant to state explicitly that it is a binding principle. At the WTO and the beef hormones dispute between the United States and Europe, the WTO appellate body declined to take the position on whether it had become customary international law or general principle of law. It stated that the precautionary principle, quote, still awaits authoritative formulation, unquote. The International Court of Justice has not recognized it yet as a general rule of international law. The International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea has also been reluctant in recognizing it explicitly as a general principle of international law, although individual judges before both courts have done so. Nevertheless, when we address issues raised by new scientific and technological advances or very serious environmental problems that pose a serious risk of, of harm and irreversible harm, the precautionary principle is essential to ensure that we do not postpone actions today to address the serious problems because of the lack of full scientific certainty, and this is whether you regard it as a binding principle of international law or a precautionary approach. Next, we turn to a principle of intergenerational equity. In the Anthropocene, we inherently affect the environment and well-being of future generations. 
future generations don't have a place at the table when we take decisions affecting them. The principle of intergenerational equity addresses this. It reflects a fundamental norm found in diverse cultural and religious traditions. The use of equity to set forth standards for allocating resources provides a foundation also for an international legal principle of intergenerational equity. The basic concept of the principle is that all generations, past, present, future, are partners in caring for and in using the earth. The present generation, which means all of us living today, must pass the earth and our natural and cultural resources to future generations in at least as good condition as we receive them so that future generations can meet their own needs. This applies both to the diversity of resources and to the quality of the environment. Four criteria guide the formulation of the elements of the principle. First, that they encourage equality among generations. Second, that they not require one generation to predict the value of future generations, but instead give future generations flexibility to pursue their own values and goals. Three, that they be reasonably clear and apply to foreseeable situations. Fourth, that they be shared generally by different cultural traditions and generally acceptable to different economic and political systems. The 2013 report of the United Nations Secretary General on the needs of future generations confirmed the, quote, fundamental principle of intergenerational equity, unquote, and noted three parts to it, conservation of options, conservation of quality, conservation of access. The issue has also been raised of whether future generations have rights or whether we only have obligations uh, to them. The 2013 report of the UN Secretary General addresses uh, this issue. And then we can ask, if future generations have rights, how do we enforce those rights? Through a guardian ad litem or other person? At the national level, some countries have experimented with an ombudsperson for future generations, period. But we need to be able to take a principle of intergenerational equity and apply it to specific problems such as natural resources, mineral re exploitation of mineral resources, administrative permits, pollution, and climate change. We need to be able to say, what do we do differently on Monday morning when we have a principle of intergenerational equity? There has been lots of activity at the national and subnational level on this. Since the, since the year 2000, 2016, there have been over 88 national court cases that have used international, international, intergenerational equity in reaching decisions. A few of the significant ones are as follows. 
The Supreme Court in Colombia ordered the government to produce an intergenerational pact for the Amazon. The Supreme Court in India, in addressing permits for large-scale mineral exploitation in Odisha, ordered the government to update its national minerals policy. The new policy in 2019 stated that the mineral resources were held in trust for the future. The policy includes a new section on intergenerational equity and provides that decisions are to consider both the principle of intergenerational equity and that of sustainable development. The third case is a recent judgment by the German Constitutional Court on Climate Change, which found in its basic law the need to consider the effects of government actions or inactions on others, including future generations. In international tribunals, there is still only nascent precedent for recognizing intergenerational equity. In 1996, the International Court of Justice handed down its advisory opinion on the legality or the threat or use of nuclear weapons and explicitly referred to the interests of future generations. The late Judge Rui Ramantri, in his dissenting opinion, discussed the damage to future generations and said that, quote, the rights of future generations have passed the stage when they were merely an embryonic right struggling for recognition and have now woven themselves into international law through major treaties, through juristic opinion, and general principles of international law. Quote, unquote. In the Pulp Mills case on the River Uruguay, Judge Gonzalo Tadaji noted that, quote, it can hardly be doubted that the knowledge of intergenerational equity forms part of conventional wisdom in international environmental law, unquote. And in the subsequent whaling in the Antarctic case, in a separate opinion, he observed that, quote, in effect, intergenerational equity marks presence nowadays in a wide range of instruments of international environmental law and indeed of contemporary public international law, unquote. The stage has been set for applying intergenerational equity in future cases before the court or in cases before other international tribunals. And now we turn to uh, two doctrines or principles that address our common interest in the environment and the Anthropocene. These doctrines are the common heritage of mankind and the common concern of humankind. The concept common heritage of mankind has early roots, but it was developed in detail during the United Nations deliberations on the Law of the Sea Convention and in the development of the law related to outer space. Article 136 of the Law of the Sea Convention designates the seabed as the common heritage of mankind. The Outer Space Treaty recognizes outer space as a common heritage of mankind. The Convention for the Protection of the World Cultural and Natural Heritage refers to the common heritage of mankind. Although its meaning is different from that for the seabed or for outer space, 
because each state has jurisdiction over its own natural and cultural heritage. To be sure, there is some disagreement as to whether the common heritage of mankind is a principle or a doctrine. In the context of the Law of the Sea negotiations, the concept of common heritage of mankind countered the notion that the seabed was res nullius and hence open for full appropriation by anyone. On the other hand, certain states have criticized it for opening up the possibility that states own a space in common, race communis, and that's that it can't be appropriated in any way. The principle or doctrine of common heritage of mankind may include the following elements. Non-appropriation of an area such as a seabed, outer space. International cooperation regarding the use of the area. Peaceful uses. In some cases, international management and control of the area, as in the seabed. Equitable sharing of benefits. And conservation for future generations. I think the common heritage, heritage of mankind as a doctrine has not been employed more fully because of the concern of states about possible intrusions on national sovereignty and potentially unwieldy international control and management arrangements over an area designated as common heritage of mankind. Then we turn to the con concept of a common concern of humankind in international law. This is potentially a broad doctrine. It refers to resources and issues of common interest, of interest to the international community. The term, the term common heritage of common concern of humankind was first articulated in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the UN Convention on Biological Diversity. Both were negotiated in parallel for the 1992 UN Conference on Environment and Development in Rio. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change acknowledges that, quote, changes in the Earth's climate and its adverse effects are a common concern of humankind, unquote. The Convention on Biological Diversity affirms that the conservation of biological diversity is a common concern of humankind, unquote. One may argue that today the common concern of humankind is a doctrine and may eventually be recognized as a principle. In the 1991 report of the United Nations Environment Program, group of experts that looked at the term. The legal experts at that time stated, quote, there was a general understanding that at the current stage, the common concern of mankind, as it was phrased then, may serve as a guiding principle rather than a legal rule. The responsibility and cooperation aspects of the concept were further emphasized, unquote. 
The common concern of humankind has never been fully defined or its scope elaborated. It could be used much more than it has been to address many of the concerns about commons, whether these commons be global, regional, or more local, and to address the issues of public goods, such as control of pandemics. As legal scholars have recently written, it could extend to freshwater and subjects far beyond environmental concerns. It is important to indicate what responsibilities states and others have for items that have been designated as of common concern of humankind. Now, the principles of international environmental law are, are still uh, developing and evolving. Uh, there has been a draft global pact for the environment that sets forth a comprehensive set of principles in international environmental law. But what's important is to recognize that it's been 50 years since the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment and that we need to keep up with changes that have happened and to prepare for changes that will happen in the future in the Anthropocene. And now I want to turn to another link to another area of international law with environment. And that is the link between environment and human rights. There are now very important developments regarding human rights and the environment. The United Nations Human Rights Council has adopted a path-breaking resolution on a human right to environment. Several decades ago, the United Nations Economic and Social Council had the right to environment on its agenda. In 2009, the International Conference on Human Rights and the Environment, held in Tehran, Iran, adopted the Tehran Declaration on Human Rights and the Environment. The declaration noted in the preamble, quote, that stewardship of the environment is a fundamental responsibility of all people and that individuals and communities have the right to live in a clean and healthy environment, unquote. The United Nations appointed special rapporteurs to report on a human right to environment. And these reports were comprehensive. On October 8, 2021, the United Nations Human Rights Council adopted a resolution entitled, The Human Right to a Clean, Healthy, and sustainable environment. The resolution noted that more than 155 states have recognized some form of a right to a healthy environment in, among other things, international agreements or their national constitutions, legislation, or policies. The Human Rights Council resolution recognizes, quote, the right to a clean, healthy, and sustainable environment as a human right that is important for the enjoyment of human rights." Unquote. It notes that the right to a clean, healthy, and sustainable environment is related to other rights and existing international law and affirms that this requires, quote, full implementation of the multilateral environmental agreements under the principles of international environmental law. Unquote. 
a resolution on the right to a clean, healthy, and sustainable environment will be introduced and considered at the United Nations General Assembly in fall 2022. The American Convention on Human Rights, meaning the Convention in the Americas, is now recognized as providing a right to a healthy environment. In November 2017, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights issued a historic advisory opinion on the environment and human rights that recognized an autonomous human right to a healthy environment. In Article 26 of the Convention, and it linked the right to the concept of sustainable development. Very importantly, for the first time, the court applied the human rights in the American Convention extraterritorially. This means that actions within one state could violate the human right to environment of persons located outside the state and not otherwise subject to its jurisdiction. Colombia had asked the court for this advisory opinion because of its concerns about environmental damage arising from the construction and operation of large-scale infrastructure projects in the greater Caribbean region. The opinion does require that a causal link be established between the state taking the actions and the harm suffered. Environment and water have also been joined together uh, in the concept of a right to water. In July 2010, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution on the human right to water and sanitation. After referring to the existing human rights agreements relevant to finding a human right to water, the resolution, quote, recognizes the right to safe and clean drinking water and sanitation as a human right that is essential for the full enjoyment of life and all human rights." Unquote. It also calls upon states and international organizations to provide financial resources, capacity building, technology transfer through international assistance and cooperation, in particular to developing countries to scale up efforts to provide safe, clean, accessible, and affordable drinking water and sanitation for all. Again, this followed reports from independent experts and rapporteur reporting to the UN on human rights obligations related to access to safe drinking water and sanitation. Some states did abstain in the voting at the United Nations General Assembly, raising the question for a few of the legal status of a human right to water and sanitation. On September 30, 2010, subsequent to the UNGA resolution, the UN Human Rights Council resolution adopted a resolution on human rights and access to safe drinking water and sanitation. The resolution differs from the UNGA resolution because it's far more detailed in both its preambular language and in the calls that it makes upon states to take certain actions to fulfill the right. 
These include full transparency in planning and implementation measures, free and meaningful participation of concerned local communities and relevant stakeholders, and accessible accountability mechanisms at the appropriate level to ensure effective remedies for violation of human rights. The resolution also addresses issues of non-state service providers of drinking water and sanitation and the other aspects of, of a human right to environment, uh, justice and water, are also found in other international human rights agreements, including a right to health and a right to food. So we have in the United Nations General Assembly Resolution and in the Human Rights Council Resolution a, hu a human right to water and sanitation uh, that is uh, based in a variety of international agreements. We will also see in the future linkage, I think, between international environmental law and national security law as states increasingly recognize the importance of a sound uh, ecosystem, a sound environment uh, for national uh, security. I want to turn now to what I call a sort of a new emerging um, issue uh, that could uh, surface more broadly internationally in the future. And that's the question of how do we treat nature? What is our relationship to nature? Uh, do fauna and flora have rights? Do certain species of animals have rights? In 2010, the World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth drafted the Universal Declaration on the Rights of Mother Earth. According to Article 2 of the Declaration, the inherent rights of Mother Earth include the right to life and to exist, the right to be respected, the, the right to regenerate its biocapacity and, and to continue its vital cycles and processes free from human disruptions, the right to maintain its integrity and identity as a distinct self-regulating and interrelated being, the right to water as a source of life, and five other precepts. The text of the Declaration was then adopted as the Law of the Rights of Mother Earth in Bolivia. Quite separately from this, several judicial cases in other countries have also had to address rights of rivers. The Atrato River in Colombia, and in New Zealand, the Wanganui River, as having a unique relationship there with the Maori people as codified in the 2017 um, Act. And in both cases, the rivers have been recognized. In India, due to our Khand High Court, held that the Ganges and Yamuna rivers were living entities, giving them the rights of a juristic person. But the Supreme Court of India stayed that ruling. There are still a few other national examples in which courts have considered rights of nature, either fauna or flora. So while we do not have international environmental law uh, directly on this point, the increasing recognition of nature as potentially having juridical status within countries points to a development that may inform 
the expansion of international environmental law in some fora uh, in the future. This is a movement that has come from the ground up within countries. And finally, I want to turn to the question of principles of international environmental law applied to environmental disasters. This is an increasingly important topic as we confront potential changes in the Anthropocene epoch. Environmental disasters include, for example, the major toxic chemical spill in Europe, when efforts to put out a fire at a chemical storage warehouse at Sandoz, a major Swiss chemical multinational in Basel, Switzerland, resulting in a huge discharge of toxic chemicals into the Rhine River. There are many other examples. The release of toxic chemicals into rivers crossing national borders. Forest fires with transboundary effects affecting the health and ecosystems in neighboring countries. Or nuclear accidents, as in Chernobyl or Fukushima. I think there are three primary aspects of international environmental law obligations related to environmental disasters. Preventing the disaster, minimizing the damage, and compensating for the damage. The duty to minimize the damage as by providing notice and information and facilitating and providing emergency assistance has arguably emerged as customary international law. The duty to prevent environmental disasters obligates states to enact safety measures and procedures to minimize the likelihood of major environmental accidents, whether that be toxic chemical spills, oil spills, forest fires, or nuclear reactor accidents that have transboundary effects. Imposing a duty upon states to prevent environmental accidents is far more efficient than relying on compensatory measures after the accident occurs. It ensures that those who can prevent the damage at least cost are required to do so. Moreover, it's equitable because those who benefit from the activity assume the costs of it rather than shifting them to another community, which could be future generations. The duty to prevent environmental disasters is part of the principle of state responsibility as reflected also in the Stockholm and Rio declarations and in a growing number of international agreements. The UNECE Economic Commission for Europe Convention on Transboundary Effects of Industrial Accidents develops the legal obligations in considerable detail for states and those responsible to prevent uh, such accidents. If we turn then to the duty to minimize damage and provide emergency assistance, this applies both to the state in which the accident occurs and to states that are in a position to alleviate the damage to them. 
Many bilateral and multilateral agreements contain these obligations. The duty to minimize damage requires that a state promptly notify countries that may be affected, provide available information about the course of the accidents, and inform affected states of measures it is taking to reduce the damage. States must also take necessary and practicable, stance, practicable steps to prevent or reduce injury to other states from the accident. Those states potentially affected by an environmental disaster are obligated to cooperate in minimizing the damage. The failure to do so on their own territory could be a defense available to the state in which the accident occurred if claims for reparation should be made. With respect to marine pollution disasters, states are obligated to develop contingency plans for responding to such incidents in their area. The Convention on Biological Diversity also calls for establishing joint contingency plans where appropriate in Article 14. And finally, I want to turn to a specific case, which is that of nuclear accidents. In 1986, in tests for resilience and safety at the Chernobyl nuclear reactor, there was a meltdown and an explosion with radiation going beyond the Chernobyl area, far beyond. As a result of this accident, states negotiated two important agreements. The first is the IAEA, Convention on Early Notification of a Nuclear Accident, which requires notification either directly to the affected states or to the International Atomic Energy Agency. And the second is the IAEA Convention on Assistance in the case of nuclear accidents or radiological emergency. The second agreement provides a multilateral framework for providing emergency assistance promptly. How to request the assistance, how to render it, the modalities for undertaking an assistance mission itself, having regard to any applicable bilateral arrangements, the question of equipment and personnel, and financial aspects of the assistance, although it does not specify who is to pay for the assistance. The two conventions do not address the important question of compensation uh, for nuclear uh, damage. As we look at environmental disasters, I think it is important to search for both bilateral, bilateral agreements, of which there are many, and multilateral agreements applicable in particular sectors, whether that be nuclear energy or industrial, uh, industrial accidents. Unfortunately, in the Anthropocene epoch, disasters may become more frequently, and the principles of international environmental law increase, increasingly relevant in their application. Now, in the last two lectures, I will look at instruments and approaches for controlling pollution and protecting natural resources, 
and issues of liability, compliance, and accountability, one of the most important issues in international environmental law. Thank you.